Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The White House trying to put out a social media fire, deleting an inaccurate tweet about Social Security. What's the issue? More and more voters in Nevada are not registered with any party. We hear possible explanations for the change. Congressman Lee Zeldin or Governor Kathy Hochul, who will emerge from what has surprisingly become a tight governor's race? We'll take a look at their campaigns and hear from an analyst. President Biden campaigns for Democrats facing competitive midterm races, but he avoids three key battleground states. Find out which ones. An update on the alleged attacker of Paul Pelosi, the husband of the Speaker of the House. Officials today confirmed that he is an illegal immigrant from Canada. David DePap's lawyer also indicated as much when discussing bail. He said DePap would be handed over to federal immigration officials even if he were granted bail. DePap is set to appear in court on Friday. He's accused of breaking into the Pelosi residence and attacking Paul Pelosi with a hammer. On Tuesday, he pleaded not guilty to all state charges, including attempted murder. He also faces two federal charges for attempted kidnapping and assault. The federal affidavit claims that he was looking for Nancy Pelosi, who was in D.C. He could get up to life in prison if convicted. The White House has deleted a post after being fact-checked on Twitter. The tweet made an inaccurate claim about the Social Security increase that was recently announced. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. The now-deleted White House tweet says seniors are getting the biggest increase in their Social Security checks in 10 years through President Biden's leadership. However, it failed to mention that the increase was due to surging, decades-high inflation. Cost-of-living adjustments have been automatically done every year for decades due to federal law. It's not contingent on Biden policies. The White House says the point was incomplete. The tweet was not complete. Usually when we put out a tweet, uh, we posted with context, and it did not have that context. The White House told the Epic Times a recent statement outlined the complete point. The statement said Medicare premiums will decrease as Social Security checks increase, giving seniors a chance to get ahead of inflation. Next year, Medicare Part B premiums will drop 3 percent while Social Security benefits will increase 8.7 percent. That's about $140 extra per month. Joelle Saad-Lessler is an expert in retirement economics. She says overall, inflation hurts retirees. If you have a 401k plan, right, so you plan during your working years to save X amount because you had in mind how much you would need during retirement. So when inflation comes and all of a sudden you need a lot more because everything you were planning to buy costs a lot more, that's going to make you vulnerable as well. While Social Security recipients welcome the benefit increase, many say it isn't enough to cover the impact of inflation. The gas is triple. The light has triple. Food is ridiculous. I come out with a bag full of groceries, $50. Don't have about 10 items. Another recipient says it'll only help so much. And it would be adequate if this house were paid for, but it's not. I'm still paying a mortgage. I'm still driving a car. I'm still paying mortgage insurance. I'm still paying car insurance. Last month, Senior Citizens League analyst Mary Johnson told CNN it's too early to say whether the increase will be enough to keep up with inflation. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The economy is a top issue for midterm candidates in both parties and for voters. But the numbers are sending mixed messages. Decades high inflation and talk of an impending recession, but a solid job market and a summer of economic growth. Here's a look at how those feelings might play out at the polls. Restaurant owners like Teresa Razo feel every shift in the economy, from labor to the supply chain to consumer confidence. Inflation and prices and shortage of staff just is killing businesses and it's really hard to to pass on all that to the customers. She and her husband operate two restaurants and a market in Orange County, California. They've been in the business for 17 years, weathered the COVID-19 pandemic and wonder what's really next. Then you read like, yeah, there's a recession coming next year. And then you read, no, we are already in the recession. Then you read another one, no, it's the beginning of it. So. Where are we? How bad is it going to be? The U.S. economy grew at a stronger than expected 2.6% annualized rate during the summer months. And the labor market remains strong with unemployment close to a half century low. 
But then there's inflation at a 40-year high and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to try to stem it. Some of the top names on Wall Street forecast a recession in 2023. The constant, sometimes confusing headlines have the issue top of mind for voters across the country, and especially in some key midterm states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania with its crucial U.S. Senate race. It's the economy. I run a business here in town, so we're, we're kind of preparing for you know, going into a slight recession or going into a recession in the beginning of next year. So anything that helps us, you know, start building our GDP and, you know, getting things going in the right direction is, is where I'll be voting. In Atlanta, Roy Pankey's work as a realtor is tied directly to how people feel about spending. People right now, uh, from most of the conversations I have had, are pretty nervous. Back in Southern California, Teresa Razo says she'll keep going with the flow. And when you're a small business, you just have to have that grind and that grit for it. No matter what the elections or economy bring next. The cost of living crisis is hitting everywhere. Children's sports activities are no exception. The onslaught of inflation has added a costly wrinkle to ballparks, swimming pools, and dance studios across the U.S., forcing many parents to scale back and keep costs down. NTD's Cost MS tells us more. Recent studies prior to inflation suggest families spend around $700 a year on kids' sports, the biggest portion being travel and equipment. Since inflation hit, many households had to find creative ways to keep costs down. For families like Rachel Kennedy's, this is proving to be a big challenge. We went from paying, you know, like $30 to like $60, $75 for a glove that he's going to outgrow in a season. Rising gas prices meant the family had to cut back on travel for weekend games and tournaments. Kennedy said she is lucky to have a supportive family, including grandparents who help with the cost of Liam's baseball. But some things had to go. Still, Liam loves baseball and sitting it out altogether wasn't a real choice. I try to make sure that he understands it's not his responsibility. It's not his fault that we are in this position. It just, this is the way the chips fell and this is what it is. But we're doing everything we can to make sure that he has what he needs to play the game. The annual inflation rate for the 12 months ending in September was 8.2%. At stake is the future of a youth sports industry that generated an estimated $20 billion in 2020. Cost MNS, NTD News. Like everything else lately, Thanksgiving is getting more expensive. Market research firm IRI predicts this year's meal could be about 13.5% more costly than last year. The company compared retail prices for some Thanksgiving foods like turkey and other meat, baking essentials, beverages, and side dishes. Promotions in the coming weeks could help lower the cost, but IRI doesn't expect that to sway prices too heavily. Shoppers are probably aware they might have to shell out more for holiday food, given how high grocery prices have been lately. According to an IRI survey, about 38% of consumers expect to pay more for Thanksgiving meals, even though they're planning to buy the same amount of food. A growing number of voters in Nevada are not registered with any party. Most of them belong to minority groups. We hear possible explanations for that. And in Arkansas, the Democratic challenger for the Senate seat says Arkansas is not a red state. Here's the story. Election campaigning is intensifying in Nevada, and there's one group that could prove crucial in the midterm battle, unregistered, nonpartisan voters. A growing number of residents in the swing states Many of them minorities are now identifying as non-aligned, choosing to vote along policy lines rather than party affiliations. Their support can't be taken for granted by either side and is being sought by canvassers from Democrats, Republicans, and even workers' unions. We're knocking on a million doors this time around in the state of Nevada. By the end of this, by election day, we will have knocked on over half of the Latino voters in the state, over half of the black voter doors in the state, and over one-third of Asian American doors in the state. Our, if we knock on those million doors and talk to those voters, we're going to win. A professor of political science says Nevada is seeing a big evolution in its makeup, becoming what he calls minority majority. You know, the older white voters are dying out and they're being replaced by minority voters, so the parties that are able to respond to the changing demography are well positioned in Nevada. One non-registered Latino explained why he thinks Latinos have gotten more involved. Recently, just because of inflation and how everything has gone up in price, 
uh, I feel the Hispanic community has gotten more engaged with politics. They've um, definitely tried to do their own research. The race for New York governor has tightened in the final weeks. This has surprised Democrats who saw strong poll numbers for incumbent governor Kathy Hochul. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. Whether you walk down the streets, you take the subway, anywhere you go, you have the right to be safe in our communities. Despite pivoting to discuss crime, Hochul's lead in opinion polls has dwindled in recent weeks. Zeldin hopes his anti-crime messaging will help him further narrow the gap and win the governor's chair. It's important to reach out to everybody, Republicans, Democrats, and independents. And there are a lot of Democrats who feel like the party has gone too far left. There are a bunch of Democrats who care about crime and public safety as their top priority. There are Democrats who want balance and common sense in government. There are Democrats who feel like this is an opportunity to be able to save the state and they want to work together. Political consultant Hank Shankoff weighs in on the race. This is an unusual race. We have Kathy Hochul, who was an elected governor before, who succeeded Andrew Cuomo when he had to remove himself because of a sex, sexual harassment scandal. He says the crime surge isn't just in New York City, it's in Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse, and other places in New York. The Democrats have somehow believed the issue was abortion, but they weren't looking at the rest of the country. People in the heartland, people they need to vote, they're not concerned about abortion. They may be one day, but right now, they're concerned about the cost of gas and bread. And they're worried about being able to walk home safely at night. Hochul has criticized Eldon for supporting former President Donald Trump and for voting against certifying the 2020 election results. Polls close next Tuesday. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden has been busy campaigning for Democratic candidates in the midterm elections, but he has been steering clear of a few key battleground states. Here's an overview. Since the beginning of September, President Biden has campaigned for Democratic candidates in around half of the states with the most competitive Senate and gubernatorial races. The states he visited most are Pennsylvania, New York, and Maryland. Biden also visited Michigan and Wisconsin once each. His latest trip was to Florida on Tuesday. But the president hasn't gone to three battleground states with some of the most competitive races, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. And he doesn't plan on visiting them before the midterm elections. All three states have competitive Senate and gubernatorial races. They could decide control of the U.S. Senate. According to a recent Wall Street Journal report, more than half of Americans disapprove of the job Biden is doing. And the report adds that some Democrats say Biden's campaign strategy reflects the challenges faced by an unpopular president in a midterm cycle. The Wall Street Journal also quoted Democratic strategist Chris Kofinas, who said, I'm not surprised he's not going to Arizona or Nevada. The question is, is he helping or hurting in Pennsylvania or New York? That part is not clear. I don't see many candidates clamoring for him to come. Compared to former Presidents Obama and Trump, Biden has a much reduced midterm campaign schedule. Obama went to 16 rallies in October 2010, and Trump went to 26 in October 2018. Biden's future campaign plans before election night will include at least three more visits. He will be traveling to New Mexico on Thursday to campaign for Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, who is up for re-election. Biden is also returning to Pennsylvania this weekend to campaign for Senate candidate John Fetterman. And the night before the election, Biden is expected at a rally in Maryland. The White House says President Biden's top advisors are making plans for a 2024 re-election bid, even though Biden hasn't yet decided whether to throw his hat into the ring again. At 79, he's the oldest president in American history. He said late last month he intends to run, but has not formally made a decision. Wednesday, a White House senior advisor said planning for a potential campaign is already underway. She reiterated Biden will make the decision in close consultation with his family, as he has in the past. More election news. A Wisconsin judge rules that absentee ballots must contain full addresses. A group hoped to change the rules to allow local election clerks to accept ballots with partial addresses. The judge said in his ruling that Wisconsin has counted absentee ballots for 56 years, and during that time, there hasn't been a legally binding definition of an address. He said his ruling is based on what has worked in practice for nearly six decades. According to guidance from the Wisconsin Elections Commission, an address is defined as three components, a street number, street name, and municipality. A new poll shows a political shift among a particular subset of the electorate. We zoom in on the who, what, and why with our next guest. 
Joining us now is Dr. Carol Swain, an award-winning political scientist and former tenured professor at Princeton and Vanderbilt Universities. She's also a distinguished senior fellow for constitutional studies with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. It's a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Swain. Thank you. A new poll by the Wall Street Journal shows that white suburban women are favoring Republicans for Congress by 15 percentage points. That's a 27-point move away from Democrats since the outlet's last poll in August. Why do you think this is happening? One thing, these are highly educated women, and the Democrats miscalculated when they thought they would naturally get the women's vote, the educated vote, because of abortion. I think these women are concerned about the aggressive CRT transgender agenda in the public schools. They don't like biological males competing against their daughters and um, seizing opportunities of young women. They're concerned about inflation and the economy, and they're not stupid. I don't think they want politicians that lie and act as if their base has no knowledge uh, of what's taking place in the world or even common sense. And you talked about the economy. Some people who the Wall Street Journal interviewed cite high prices and what they called rampant illegal immigration as reasons for voting yeah. straight Republican. What do you make of this? I mean, rising crime. Uh, everyone's a target of crime. And so I think that uh, people are concerned about that. And with the illegal immigration, uh, the situation is totally out of control. And um, people that follow what's taking place at the border and how uh, illegal um immigrants or migrants are being transported all across the U.S., they know that this is a very dangerous situation when you have millions of people in the country, you have no idea where they came from, who they are, what their agenda uh, ultimately is. And then there's, there's the concern about the electoral process and voting and whether or not people who vote are actually documented and eligible to vote. Now, Carol, you've touched on the border, and we've seen pushes to get non-citizens the right to vote, whether it's in local elections or elsewise. Now, I want to know, do the transgender agendas align with white suburban women's values? And if so, or if not, is that enough to get them to motivate them to go out and vote? I would say that um, non-discrimination against people that identify with the LGBT uh, agenda that that aligns with a lot of American values that most Americans don't want to see people discriminated against. I think the transgender agenda has become so aggressive and the fact that they have brought it down to K through 12 where they're, they're inviting our children, you know, to question whether or not they're biological male or biological female. They're hiding information from parents. They're secretly helping children uh, begin the process of uh, changing their sex. Uh, we know they can't really change their sex, but question their identity. I think that uh, this is affecting many suburban moms, not just white moms, but also uh, other races and ethnicities. And so people are rightly coming together to push back against that. So it's the whole, everything the Democratic Party stands for is so far left, so outrageous, that I believe that people who are intelligent will increasingly move away from that party. And those people that are loyal to it, if they care about the Democratic Party, they need to seize control because right now their party is controlled by leftist, Marxist-leaning activists who have no interest in America or the American way of life. And these are all very important issues, and we'll see how this shakes out in the midterms. Dr. Carol Swain, award-winning political scientist, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, the New York Attorney General's office says it has secured over $500 million from Teva Pharmaceuticals and affiliates for its role in the opioid crisis. Get the details right here on NTD News. The Biden administration's effort to protect its top officials has failed. A U.S. district judge last month ordered eight top officials be deposed in a lawsuit. The plaintiffs allege the White House has worked with big tech to censor speech. Among the officials are Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, and Deputy Assistant to the President, Rob Flaherty. Government lawyers asked for a partial stay of the order. They said preparing for the deposition would impede the officer's government 
government duties. But the judge said the government failed to prove that the officers would be irreparably harmed considering an alleged violation of the First Amendment and the public interest in free speech. The depositions are planned for early December. Since Elon Musk bought Twitter, and long before the purchase, many have been wondering what will happen to its staff. Now anonymous sources tell Insider around half of the company's employees could soon be let go. Insider says it saw an internal message which backs this claim. The sources say there is a list of around 3,700 people who may be let go, all chosen by vice presidents. Reportedly, the lists were sent to Musk and his team for review. The company currently has around 7,500 employees, and we will know more tomorrow at noon. That's when Twitter may have its first layoffs. Musk fired top executives, including the CEO, when the deal first went through. Musk also mentioned the possible reboot of the Vine app. It's a short video app that's similar to TikTok. Twitter shut it down a few years ago. Musk is also making changes to the subscription service and the blue checkmark verification system. Musk says an $8 a month subscription will give priority in replies, mentions, and searches. It will also give paying users the verified badge. Subscribers will be able to post longer audio and video clips and see half as many ads. The New York Attorney's General's office has said it has secured $523 million from Teva Pharmaceuticals and affiliates for its role in the opioid crisis. It effectively marks the end of the state's litigation against opioid makers and distributors not currently in bankruptcy proceedings. The funds were secured as part of Teva's $4 billion-plus global settlement. It's separate from the state's liability verdict in a jury trial against the company in 2021. Attorney General Letitia James says it's the largest settlement she has reached with an individual opioid defendant. Under the agreement, Teva won't market opioids or fund third parties that promote them. It's also banned from producing high-dose opioids. In total, the Attorney General's office has secured more than $2 billion from opioid manufacturers and distributors to fund abatement, treatment, and prevention resources. A businessman was fined $50,000 for an unintentional tax filing error, but the Internal Revenue Service increased the fine by 5,400% to more than $2.7 million. The case is now being heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. Alexandru Bittner is a dual U.S. citizen who has long lived in Romania. He had 25 foreign bank accounts, but says he didn't know that he must report his foreign income. He thus failed to file tax returns for the years 2007 through 2011. Under the Biden-backed Inflation Reduction Act, the IRS fined Bittner $10,000 for each unreported account over the five-year period, though Bittner submitted the missing forms afterwards. Ohio's attorney general is suing Dollar General. AG Dave Yost gave a law, filed a lawsuit against the discount chain after receiving consumer complaints from multiple counties. The suit accuses Dollar General of advising goods for one price on shelves and then charging more at the register. The suit cites violations of Ohio's Consumer Sales Practices Act. Stores in Ohio are allowed to have an error rate of up to 2% on overcharges. According to the AG's press release, state regulators found error rates from about 16% to about 88%. That comes from 20 Dollar General stores. Some consumers said even after they pointed out price discrepancies, the stores would not change the price. Taxpayers in Pennsylvania have unknowingly paid more than $16 million to support child gender transition services. This is being done through the Children's Health Insurance Program, an initiative bolstered by Governor Tom Wolf. According to data from the Pennsylvania Family Institute, the state's spending on cross-sex drugs and procedures for minors has increased each year since Wolf took office in 2015. By 2021, the spending reached almost $4 million. The treatments range from puberty blockers and hormone therapy to physical surgery. Many treatments and side effects are irreversible. Critics point out that a young person's brain is not fully developed when the decision is made. An independent lab has found troubling levels of the cancer-causing chemical benzene in more types of dry shampoo products. That's according to a new report from Valisher. It comes after certain aerosol dry shampoos, including some Dove, Nexus, Suave, TG, and Tresemme products, were voluntarily recalled last month due to the potential presence of benzene. On Monday, Valisher sent a citizen petition to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration saying 70% of samples from 34 different brands of dry shampoo products showed quantifiable levels of benzene. 
The petition urges the FDA to quickly request recalls and better define limits for benzene contamination in other products. The FDA normally takes six months to respond to a citizen petition. The FDA and the brands listed in the petition did not immediately respond to a request for comment. And still to come, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation to pull out of China after 40 years. And German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is set to visit China this week, but concerns have been raised over Germany's dependence on the Chinese market. Get the details after this short break. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation said on Wednesday it was shutting its news bureau in Beijing. This after waiting two years in vain for a China work permit for its journalists. The publicly owned news outlet had numerous exchanges with Chinese officials in Canada over the past two years about visas, but to no avail. A letter sent in April to China's ambassador to Canada was acknowledged but not followed up on. The decision comes months after CBC News was forced to shut its Moscow bureau by Russia's foreign ministry. That was in response to a Canadian ban on state TV station Russia Today. The expulsion occurred after a 44-year presence in Moscow. CBC says it will search for a new location to cover East Asia over the coming months. Meanwhile, Radio Canada will station its journalists in Taiwan for the next two years. An FCC commissioner says the U.S. government should ban TikTok. Brendan Carr with the Federal Communications Commission says TikTok should not be allowed in the U.S. That's over concerns about the company's handling of user data. There are fears the Chinese regime could try to access the information TikTok has on U.S. citizens who use the social media app. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. has spent months negotiating a national security agreement to allow TikTok to continue operating in the U.S. But Commissioner Carr says he worries the company will find a way around the deal. Carr concedes that the FCC does not have the regulatory authority that the Federal Trade Commission or other federal agencies hold. TikTok hasn't commented on Carr's statements. Meanwhile, TikTok has informed its European users that staff in China can access their data. The Chinese-owned social video app says it's to keep the platform consistent, enjoyable, and safe, but there have long been concerns about China taking advantage of user information on the platform. The app says the data could be used to test its algorithms, which recommend content to users. The data could also help detect automated accounts. TikTok has previously acknowledged that some user data is accessed by employees of the parent company ByteDance in China. And now we turn to the Indo-Pacific, where Beijing's aggression appears to have Washington and Canberra forging closer links. Australian broadcaster ABC reported the U.S. is to send six B-52 bombers to an airbase in Australia. Let's take a look. The B-52 is a long-range heavy bomber capable of delivering nuclear weapon strikes. The U.S. Air Force has been rotating bombers through Australia for years. But sending as many as six heavy bombers seems to mark a big increase. It comes as the U.S. and Australia seek to boost military cooperation to counter Beijing's military activity, particularly near Taiwan. An expert says the move is sending a signal to China, warning Beijing not to launch an assault on the island. News of the project riled up Beijing on Monday. Chinese state media accused Australia of becoming an overseas bomber base of the U.S. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese didn't directly respond when asked about the issue. We engage with our friends in the United States Alliance. Uh, the, from time to time, there are visits, of course, uh, to Australia, and uh, of including uh, in, in Darwin, uh, that has U.S. Marines, of course, on a rotating basis uh, stationed there. Earlier this month, Australia signed a new security deal with Japan. Both countries called for peace across the Taiwan Strait. China's communist leader, Xi Jinping, had said during the recent Communist Party Congress that he would never rule out the use of force to take over Taiwan. The military bond between America and Japan is ironclad, according to the Pentagon. However, a recent move from the U.S. side worries some. 
the U.S. may soon maintain a weaker military presence in Japan. But four lawmakers are questioning the move that would make it happen. The U.S. Air Force plans to withdraw a number of F-15 fighter jets from the Kadena Air Base in Japan starting this month. The jets are being retired. To take their place, the Air Force is considering whether to deploy more capable aircraft permanently, but the old jets would still be taken out of service without time to replace them. The plan has triggered concerns, mainly that the move would create a void of U.S. military forces in Japan. The Pentagon responded on Tuesday. The U.S. commitment to Japan and regional security uh, and the defense of Japan remains ironclad. Since World War II, Japan isn't legally allowed to have a military, though it does keep a self-defense force. The U.S. is the leading force that defends Japan. The German chancellor is set to make a trip to China tomorrow. He's faced criticism for allowing a Chinese state-run company to buy a share of a major German port. Now EU leaders are wondering how much Germany is willing to confront its dependence on China. This report comes from NTD's France correspondent David Vives. He is set to become the first G7 leader to shake hands with Xi Jinping since the start of the COVID pandemic. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz will make an inaugural trip to China this Friday, accompanied by a delegation of business leaders. China has been Germany's single biggest trade partner for years, as China's demand for German cars and machinery has fueled its growth over the past two decades. EU leaders will be closely watching for clues on how serious Berlin is about reducing its economic reliance on China and on confronting its communist leadership over human rights. It comes after Germany's BASF announced it would cut the size of its European sites permanently and instead expand in China. The world's largest multinational chemical company cited a triple burden of sluggish growth, high energy costs and over-regulation in Europe. According to Poland and Belgium-based professor and senior analyst David Engels, the German Chancellor's move shows the tensions over energy prices in Europe and the tensions with other countries over-regulating these prices. The German government is currently heavily subsidizing its own energy sector, especially the price of gas in Germany. They want to help the German consumer as much as possible, not to have to pay too much. That's the price of the war in Ukraine. Now we know that this was going to create quite serious tensions with France. We can see here a kind of doublespeak, which is obviously also expressed in connection with the links with China. EU Commissioner Thierry Breton said this week that European governments and companies must realize China is a rival to the EU and they should not be naive whenever they approve Chinese investment. Breton warns of China gaining influence over critical infrastructure. One week ago, the German government approved the sale of a stake in Germany's largest port to a Chinese state-run shipping company. Engels says the pandemic has exposed Europe's dependency to China. The European Union realized this at the time of the COVID crisis. Of all its dependencies at the medical level, at the level of the various supply chains across the continent and overseas, in short, the crisis of the last few years has really shown things that many commentators have been pointing out for years, even decades. That is to say, we are making ourselves systematically dependent on China with our eyes open and that the rationale of the Europeans, including of the EU, has made through certain economic treaties, admittedly enormous, this dependence possible. According to the European Economic Chamber, Germany, France, the Netherlands and the UK together account for almost 90% of European direct investments in China since 2018, while more than half of that came from Germany. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, the deal to export Ukrainian grain resumes. Seven vessels carrying Ukrainian food products are departing from the Black Sea. In the UK, police are criticized for being too lenient on the Just Stop oil protests. We'll hear from a former police chief about the difficult balance between protocol, public opinion, and due process. More shortly here on NTD News Today.
Zooming in on the war in Ukraine, the country has resumed exports of its grain products. Seven ships carrying agricultural products left Ukrainian Black Sea ports today. The vessels were loaded with roughly 320,000 tons of food products and were headed toward European and Asian countries. This comes a day after the Black Sea Grains Initiative resumed. The United Nations brokered the deal in July, which intended to free up Ukraine's grain exports following Russia's invasion. Last Saturday, Russia suspended participation in the deal. The country said their vessels in the Black Sea fleet were attacked. Russia resumed its participation on Wednesday, saying it received guarantees from Ukraine that it would not use the Black Sea Grain Corridor for military operations. Today, the Bank of England raised interest rates by the most since 1989, but it also warned that Britain faced a long recession and told investors borrowing costs were likely to go up by less than they expect. Today, we've increased bank rate by 0.75 percentage points to 3%. This is the eighth consecutive increase in bank rates since December of last year. We've raised rates by a total of 2.9 percentage points during that period. These are big changes. They have a real impact on people's lives. British Finance Minister Jeremy Hunt said the decision will be tough for households with mortgages and businesses with loans. The spike means mortgage holders will see their annual costs increase by more than $400. Meanwhile, the pound continued to fall amid warnings that the country is in its longest recession on record. This week, the U.S. Federal Reserve also raised interest rates by 75 basis points, but it signaled that the U.S. borrowing costs could rise more than expected to hold down inflation. British police have been criticized for their handling of the recent Just Stop oil protests. Some members of the public want them to use more force to get protesters out of the way. Entity's Malcolm Hudson brings us this report from London on the police force's balance between following protocol and listening to public opinion. Just Stop oil protests have been happening more frequently, with activists disrupting roads and spraying buildings with paint. Some members of the public have gotten angry and have stepped in to move protesters out of the way. They say Just Stop Oil is preventing them from getting to work and even to hospital, and some are asking why the police aren't doing more to arrest the protesters. But while the police have the powers to arrest, they also need to follow protocol to ensure everything they do is legal. Former Chief Constable for Greater Manchester Police, Sir Peter Fahey, just spoke to us about the police watchdog's reports. I asked him about the challenges police face when responding to protests. Clearly, you know, the officers obviously have to, uh, you know, act within the law. They have to make sure that the evidence is there before they arrest someone uh, and, that they're, you know, sure that they've got that evidence to secure a conviction so that it's not just arresting them and they get out immediately and are able to form a protest again. But there's also another element, which is, in a way, the court of public opinion. Although some people want the police to be more heavy-handed with Just Stop Oil, Fahey said the police are very aware how they come across on social media. He also said when some cases have got to court, the courts decide the basic human right to protest overrides legislation from Parliament. And, and the fact is British policing is very different from policing in other countries. You know, in countries like France, there wouldn't be any argument here. The police would use uh, water cannon, they would use tear gas, potentially they certainly would use a far higher degree of force. You know, we've, see, we've seen that regularly in France and in lots of other countries. That is not the British system. Um, you know, British people don't like the police to be using force disproportionately. Fahey said the police have a very difficult balance because they have to deal with each protest equally. They recognise the public's anger against disruptions, but they are also aware that being too heavy-handed could make the public mood turn very quickly. An additional complexity faced by the police are the tactics used to protest. Disruptive protests get more attention from the media, and they can also be more difficult to handle. During the Dartford Bridge protest, Fahey said police had to consider the safety of the protesters as well as that of the police officers. The reality is as well is the protesters, as I say, have that sort of, you know, they have the weapon of surprise. They can keep on changing their tactics. Uh, they're very clever of knowing how they can test the limit of legislation and push it to the very edge. Uh, and as I say, they have that element of surprise uh, and that element of con constantly changing what it is they're going to do uh, and gain that publicity. Fahey also said that some individual police officers are frustrated at the media coverage of the protests. 
He said these officers think it may encourage activists to stage more disruptive protests down the line to get more media attention. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. In the UK, Royal Mail workers will go on strike for 48 hours around Black Friday and Cyber Monday in a dispute over pay, jobs and working conditions. The Communication Workers Union, which represents 115,000 members, announced the action for November 25th and November 28th. The Royal Mail has urged workers not to go on strike during the busiest time of the year. The company had proposed a new pay offer to the union worth 9% over two years. A spokesperson said they are doing all they can to minimize delays and keep people, businesses, and the country connected. The general secretary of the union said posties are in the fight of their lives against the uberization of Royal Mail and the destruction of their working conditions. And just ahead, dog ownership is exploding in Egypt as perceptions of the animal change. With this has come a dramatic growth in the pet care industry. And plastic waste threatens the waters and beaches of the Maldives. Local leaders are calling for the world to stop discarding plastic. Get the full story just after this break. Good to have you back with us. The government in El Salvador is destroying the graves of alleged gang members. The government said in a statement they will remove tombstones that have images or symbols related to criminal gangs. They're having inmates do the work. The process has already begun in a cemetery about six miles from the capital, San Salvador. According to the authorities, the remains of the deceased will remain in the same place. However, associators will no longer be able to place a message or image related to the gangs. The initiative is especially focused on removing signs of MS-13, which is said to be one of the most violent gangs in the world. Dog ownership in Egypt is exploding, and it's driving major growth in the pet care industry. Traditionally, dogs were considered unclean in cultures of the Arab world, but that perspective is changing. Let's take a look. Miriam Ramey of Cairo is the owner of two dogs, a female Pekingese and a male mix. Devoted to her career, she relies on a house called Veterinary Service to care for her pets. For someone like me who works long hours, it's good to have a service like vet work in Egypt. I always need an easy and quick way to find a trustworthy vet who can examine my pets at home in their own territory. I also need someone to remind me of their vaccination dates and any pet care needs. Veterinarian Fadi Azuni launched vet work in 2019, a time when pet ownership began to rise amid the pandemic. The company features high-quality medical services catering to around 38,000 pets across Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. I am a vet myself and I have owned pets. I have experienced the pain felt by vets who cannot reach new customers and the pain felt by pet parents who struggle to find a good vet. Even if they find one, they are not always sure of their competence. But through the VetWork platform, pet owners are immediately connected to up to 400 competent vets. Other burgeoning pet care brands offer grooming services or sell imported pet food and accessories. Among them is Ziggy Pups, with two flagship stores located in Cairo's affluent suburbs. There is usually a balance in terms of the number of customers with dogs and those with cats. But lately, more dog owners come up to us, and this is normal because dogs usually need more care and cleaning. Dog ownership has only become popular in Egypt over the last decade. Dogs are considered unclean in mainstream Islam and should not be owned as companions. Muslims are only allowed to keep dogs for two specific reasons, guarding or hunting. However, some well-respected religious scholars are changing that perspective. And experts say the latest dog fever marks a cultural shift in the Arab world. Pet ownership, especially pets of rare breeds, is a sign of a growing social segmentation. It reflects the desire of rich Egyptians to stress their social identity and stand out from the rest of the people by imitating certain Western lifestyles that are not common in Egypt. 
According to the Egyptian Kennel Association, the number of registered dog owners jumped from 2,000 in 2016 to over 860,000 in 2019. This has made the country one of the fastest growing pet markets in the world. Community leaders in the Maldives are calling for the world to stop using single-use plastics. The discarded waste often ends up on their beaches. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the issue. The Maldives is often viewed as an idyllic island paradise, but plastic waste is ruining its picturesque beaches. One island's mayor, Ismail Rafiq, wants to see an end to the pollution. Wherever in the world you live, please, you know, stop producing plastic, stop throwing away waste, and be a responsible citizen, adopt a green lifestyle, you know, the environment. If we treat the environment badly, it will come back to haunt us. The mayor is also concerned about microplastics and the fish they eat. A scientific mission called Necton could provide some answers. If you can help us uh, tell the people that, okay, that water and formula has microplastics, the fish you eat has microplastics, I think then it is very important for us to help the people to change their lifestyle. With the world's oceans largely unexplored, there are many unanswered questions about the damage being done. When organisms at the very uh, base of the food chain consume very small plastic bits, you know, do they stay in the bodies of the organism? Do plastics release uh, certain toxic compounds which then harm the organisms? Do those toxic compounds uh, bioaccumulate as they go up the food chain? Locating the plastic waste is one problem. Removing it is quite another. Big plastic, fairly easy to remove uh, from wherever you see it. Uh, when it comes to small particles, which again, naked eye cannot see, removing those is literally impossible. So that stuff will, will, always, well, will be there for the years to come. Across the Maldives, extensive efforts are underway to collect, separate, and recycle plastics. One island community is gradually replacing single-use plastic with glass. If the plastic waste problem isn't resolved, these waters might one day be too dirty to swim in. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, an American piano dealer unknowingly buys an instrument with bite marks in the wood. It turns out the piano is a valuable piece of history. Find out why here on NTD News. New York City is gearing up for its annual marathon. City leaders and race officials painted a splash of color at the line drawing ceremony. Along with city agencies and the marathon sponsor, officials painted mini lines with four different colors at the finish line. The actual route of the marathon is a 26-mile-long blue line. It will then be mapped by the city's Department of Transportation. This year will mark the return of the marathon at its full capacity. That's after being downsized in 2021 and canceled in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This Sunday, some 50,000 runners from around the world will traverse all five boroughs of New York City. Police Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell has pledged to guard the public safety during the event. A piano dealer unknowingly buys an instrument owned by Thomas Edison. Now he's looking for the right home for the historical artifact. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. Robert Friedman is the proud owner of a unique Steinway Grand Piano. He bought the instrument in January 2021 for about $45,000. At first, he didn't notice that the piano had distinctive marks. His friend, a musician and history enthusiast, recognized the indentations. Ronnie and I were in our living room at, when he came in first to tune the piano, and he looked down at the piano, and he said, oh, those are Edison's bite marks. And I said, what do you mean? Thomas Edison bought the Model B Ebony from Steinway & Sons in 1890 for $725. Edison had hearing loss and would lean in close to the piano as someone played, and he'd bite the instrument too. My wife came over and looked at it. She is a retired dental hygienist, and she looked at it and she looked all around. She goes, yes, those are definitely incisor marks. Pressing his teeth into the wood helped Edison experience the vibrations in his skull, or in his own words, hear through his teeth. You can see it's, 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 it's all ravaged in here where he actually 
had bit the piano and the finish is torn away and the wood is torn away here. Edison invented the phonograph in 1877. When he bought the piano 13 years later, he was experimenting with sound recording. Without possibly this piano, he would have not been able to hear what he was designing as far as recording equipment goes. Friedman has yet to find an appropriate historical site to buy the piano. He is offering the same price he bought it for. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A rare pink diamond that weighs 18.18 carats will be up for auction next Tuesday. The auction house expects it to fetch between $25 million to $35 million. It is the largest pear-shaped vivid pink diamond ever to be offered at auction uh, and it's estimated at 25 to 35 million Swiss francs uh, and it's something we expect to do incredibly well on the day of the sale. It is called the Fortune Pink Diamond. It has a true vivid pink and a clean stone. An 18 is considered a fortuitous number by Asian collectors. Christie says they've had a huge amount of interest around the world already. The auction house notes that pink diamonds are among the rarest of all gems. Only a handful of vivid pink diamonds over 10 carats have ever been offered at auction. The largest vivid pink diamond sold at Christie's was the 18.96 carat Winston Pink Legacy. It fetched $50 million in 2018 and set a world record price per carat for a pink diamond sold at auction. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.